Well, let's pray, and then we will continue through Exodus chapter 3. Father in heaven, we thank you for a chance to look into your word. We, uh, we're very thankful we live in this country. We can open our Bibles. We can sing freely like we did to this worthy God. We, we're grateful for that. May we not take that for granted, Lord, as our brothers and sisters around the world often worship in silence and, and in hiding, Lord. We thank you that we can do that here. And we know not, it isn't just worship, Lord. It's who we're worshiping. This I am God, as we'll be studying today. This one who is robed in eternity. He is so worthy of our praise and worship. Lord, those of us in this room that know him personally through the, the great atoning work of the Lord Jesus Christ, we are so, so blessed to sing to you, to know about you, to study about you. And so, Lord, hear us as we speak and what we've learned and as we turn our, a text, turn our minds to your word in the text, Lord. Father, I'm just reminded this week how grateful I am that I don't have to try to reproduce something that you said. I can study your word and preach your word. Lord, I pray that you would just help me tonight as we look at these great truths, particularly the person and the deity and the glory of God as Moses interacts with you, Lord. Father, we ask that you bless this evening, Lord, in Jesus' name, amen. Last week we started in on this text. I was afraid I wasn't going to get through it because it really is an introduction text to Moses now speaking firsthand with God Almighty. It's an amazing text, and this text marks a lot of things. We're going to see as it unfolds, as we see how it fills into the New Testament as well, but it is a powerful text. But but it's a reminder, and I started last week out this, that we, saying this, we, we study the Bible to know our great God. We have to realize that. I'm going to keep banging that drum because so often Christians and others find themselves trying to study the Bible to find some kind of trick, to find some kind of something. Everything you need and want is found in God. So we, we want to study him, and I just want to keep banging that and learning to say, God, take me to the words so that I'll know you. I'll find satisfaction in life, in marriage, in parenting, and in, in whatever financial status I am. I'll find contentment when I understand you. So keep me there. And it's fun as we look at this passage because here's Moses learning about Yahweh. You're learning about God. This is the one he had heard about. This is the one who spoke to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. He's now speaking to him and he's overwhelmed with who he's in front of. And yet he has many questions. We're reminded that we saw in Genesis 46 that that was the last time God had spoken. For so 400 plus years, God has not spoken personally to someone that is least recorded. And now he's unveiling this truth. And this is such a turning point for Moses. Um, he has been uh, running out in the wilderness. He's settled down in a sense. He had to flee because he had, uh, he had murdered uh, an Egyptian guard. Uh, uh, and he, his life was in jeopardy. And so he ran. And he ends up out into the desert. God is very gracious to him. This murderer, he's very gracious to him. He gives him a, a spouse and a much-needed family. Um, and, 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 and very much important in the fact of the study of Moses' life is God made him a shepherd out there. He taught him how to care for livestock and all of those which would certainly make him 
a great shepherd of Israel as he put that together with the greatness of God. And so here he's on this learning curve out there for the last 40 years. And this once, and so fun, as we, were ta- we talked about this last week, this, this once very self-confident man, I can get my people free, I'll go out there and get this right, who failed miserably, now is extremely humble as he comes before God. And he has lots of objections that he's actually the man that, <laughs> that God should be using. Number one in your, in your notes there, we, this is stuff we covered last week, that the deliverer is uniquely called. Remember we talked about Moses, that he, he, is, uh, he is a human, but he's a human type. Uh, so he's, he, he parallels truths of the scriptures. He is not Christ. He needed to be saved. He needed the blood of Jesus Christ to wash back, wash back over him. But it's like several figures within the Old Testament, they're types. And so he's chosen by God. He's sent by God. He's speaking for God. He's delivering for God. All the things that we see Jesus Christ do, yet with perfection for our salvation. But he's just a type, and we must remember that. Um, he, remember, he seemed to be content living out there, taking care of his father-in-law's flock, but, but that's all going to change. And as he comes before God, he's right out Mount Sinai, uh, Horeb, what it says in our text. But Mount Sinai and Horeb are generally the same area, referred to uh, uniquely, describes both of them as the mountain of God throughout the scriptures. In 2 and 3, remember, he came and the angel of the Lord begins to speak to him out of this bush that was not burning and, and the angel of the Lord, as you recall, is, is a reference to the presence of God. God is there, and he is speaking in this theophany here. Verse 4, um, from the burning bush, call, uh, God calls Moses by name. He knows who he is. He is not unaware of people, is he? Here's this man that thought he could hide out there. God knows who he is. He knows all people. And he certainly knew Moses. And Moses' response, you remember, was, Here am I, which is a good response to God when God calls to you. Um, what a good response. Here am I. And yet he was, he was standing on holy ground. Remember that in chapter uh, 3, verse 5. He says, You're standing on holy ground. This is, and, and we talked about this in depthly because we have to remember there's, there's, there's all kinds of places you can travel throughout the Middle East and go to uh, what they think to be the birthplace of Christ and different places. And there's some church there and they call it holy because the church is there. No, no, no. Places are holy because God is there. <laughs> and then we said this, the most holy place on earth is where? Right where you're seated if you're a believer. Because the Spirit of God indwells us, the holy God of all creation, this God who speaks to Moses, he takes resonance within us with, through his Spirit. What an amazing thing. And you know what? He can't take residence with you if you're not holy. So that means our sins must be paid for. They, we must be clear of that. We, we must have a standing in front of God to have a relationship where he could indwell us. Think about that. You go, well, Scott, you, you don't know my life. I probably don't, but I know our God. And I know how he forgives sins and cleanses us of all unrighteousness and forgives us and gives us a standing. And so what a, what a great text that was in verse 5. I found myself just worshiping, thinking about that place is holy because God's there. Not because Moses is there or it's some reverential place upon this earth. And we talk for just a moment about the church and its loss of reverence that it has for God sometimes. And today I think we see that as probably difficult as ever. The way people want to approach God. God is not your girlfriend. He is a holy God. 
And yet we said this last week, and I've really pondered, and a lot of people had conversations with me. The balance of Abba Father and omniscient, all-powerful, all-knowing Yahweh, the I Am God. Only His children who have been perfected by His Son's work on the cross can get their mind somewhat around that. That I can say, Father, I need you. You can, in a sense, as you study his word and speak with him, crawl up into his lap and begin to speak with him. And yet, there's a reverence and holiness before this God. And so when he says, take off your shoes, you're in holy place, it really still teaches us how we approach God. We cannot approach God on our own. There, there's never a soul that has ever come before God on their own strength, on their own righteousness, on their own holiness, each and every one of us are needing Christ to perfect us to be in his presence. So what a revelation this was. This is the God of Moses' forefathers. This is the one the nation has been taught about. This is the covenant-giving God. Now Moses is in front of them. And just one thought before we uh, continue to pick up on this is we were talking, someone, I don't know who I was talking with this this week, they said, you know, it's, a, it's staggering to think about that, and yet, through Christ, we can behold him. In fact, Hebrews 4, 16, is it, says that we can boldly or with confidence come before this holy God. I find that absolutely thrilling when I think about it, and just brings me to worship. Number two, uh, God has heard and seen his people and his coming. Remember we talked about this is the divine uh, concern of Yahweh. There's a divine concern, seven and nine. He was concerned about them. He's, he, is, he said, I have surely seen, I have given heed, I am aware of their suffering, I've come down, I hear their cries, I see the oppression. He is concerned, there's a divine concern he has for his people. He's not forgotten them, and he's not forgotten you. And we said this again. We, we said, look, and suffering is, is part of the way God trains his people to trust him. And you say, well, that seems barbaric. Well, how else will you learn? <laughs> he, he, he perfects us through those things in a sense. He perfects us by the finished work of Christ, but as he's continuing to make us into the image of Christ in that in this transformation that goes on in our life over uh, the life of a Christian as we progress in our sanctification, he uses things, not only suffering, but he does use suffering. How many of you have suffered at some level where you said, God, I need you. I cannot get through this. Christian, if you have not said that, I, I, I think you probably should have a little concern. Because that's what God does. He brings us to that point where we need him. So often I find myself saying that more and more. But notice he says, I'm going to come down in verse 8. This is the divine intervention we talked about. He's coming down. And he's coming to deliver, to snatch away, to take these people in such a beautiful teaching of bringing one out of slavery. The New Testament uses this, this teaching right here to teach how Christ delivers us out of slavery. Very similar language found in Romans 6 and, and other places that we see here. And what a great type this is as we watch God going to snatch them away. And he delivers them to what the Bible says a very spacious and fertile ground. Remember uh, verse 8 talks about a land, verse 8 and 9, of land flowing with milk and honey. It's spacious. It sounds like heaven. And it's to teach us that God has a unique kingdom for us. 
And the answer to verse 9 um, uh, of what's going to happen here uh, is, is he's heard their cries, he's seen the oppressions, and so he commissions, there's this divine commissioning of Moses. I'm going to send you, Moses. I'm going to send you. Though clearly deliverance is, is only possible by supernatural intervention and power, God raises up individuals, and God has set people into you and I's life to share the gospel with us. He's, he's used people, he's used men and women. Um, some of the greatest people in my life were, one, my mother, who shared the gospel with me and read the scriptures to me at an early age, Sunday school teachers and youth leaders and pastors who are influential in my life. You all have those as well. So though God does you know, the supernatural work as he had to save me, but he uses men, women, to be those tools to intervene and to bring in these truths. Verse 11, we start to see Moses' objection. We see his very humanness here, isn't it? Um, he's, there's considerable difficulties, he's saying. Look, uh, I, got, I got all kinds of problems here. How, how's this going to work? Who am I? Why, why would they want to hear from me? Um, this is such a fun passage, isn't it? Because every one of us, you know, you've all been there. When someone says, hey, we want you to serve in this ministry, you go, whoa, whoa, you know, who am I to do that? You know, God loves to use the nobodies. We talked about that in length last week. And so this is the start of four objections that Moses has, that he's the, actually the right guy for the job. Verse 12, God reminds him, says, look, I will be with you. A great promise. We hear that throughout the scripture. He tells other great patriarchs and matriarchs that down through the Old Testament. But his great statement on the Great Commission, Matthew 28, Lo, I am with you. And it's a promise to us that he will never leave us nor forsake us as recorded in Hebrews for us. The key to the situation is not who Moses was or what he could do, but that God was with him. And brothers and sisters, when we understand that, um, I, I think it pulls back the limits to what we think can happen with you individually, us individually, or us corporately. When we believe that we have joined what God is doing, where he is going and what he's doing, we've not told him to come and do what we're doing. We've asked him what he is doing, and we've joined that great God of Exodus chapter 3. It's amazing the things that can be done. He reminds them that they're going to come out and they're going to worship at this mountain, what an amazing thing. It's a, it's a great promise. It's a guarantee. Look, I'm going to do this, what I'm sending you to do, because you're going to come right back here with my people. So the Israelites worshiping at the foot of Mount Sinai means God had saved them. He had delivered them. He had rescued them from brutal slavery and put it into their captivity and brought them out. And so Exodus is this great prelude, and already my mind is connecting things to Revelations and other books and, and parts of scriptures that teach of the eschatological uh, work of Christ in the end, how he brings us out and he brings people to himself in the very end. Well, we want to pick up with uh, point number three here and just finish this lesson out tonight. Number three says the motivating message to Moses, Israel, and Pharaoh. The motivating message to Moses, Israel, and Pharaoh. Since God had turned the conversations from Moses' inadequacy, remember that's where he was trying to go, look, I can't do this. But God's turned this conversation from his inadequacy to his very presence. Look, I am, I am here. You want to make all these objections, but I'm telling you, I am with you. I'm sending you, and I'm, and I'm going with you. 
So Moses in verse 13 presents yet another objection. It's another human hurdle that we often throw in front of God. Look at verse 13. It says this, Then Moses said to God, here's Moses speaking to Yahweh here, Behold, I am going to the sons of Israel, and I will say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you. Now they may say to me, Well, what is his name? What shall I say to them? How many of you forget people's names in here? Yeah. <laughs> Remembering names takes work. And, and when you walk into a large crowd of people, it's hard to do that, right? And, and sometimes we think, you know, we're more worried about what we're going to say than listening to the person who's talking to us, and so we don't catch their name often. So you go, well, it's kind of valid. What am I, I going to say? I, I, you're a burning bush. You know, you, you know, you're the God of my forefathers. But what am I going to say? I don't think this is going to work, God. This isn't just I'm ignorant of this. This is another objection. He's trying to get out of this. And interestingly, Moses, it's funny when you look at this verse 13, notice it, it says, interestingly, Moses projects himself into the role that God has issued for him. But while using the argument, he goes, well, behold, uh, say I'm going to the sons of Israel. (laughs) Say, Say I take up this crazy notion that you have. And I go back to Egypt where, by the way, I murdered a guy there. You you can see he's put himself into this, into this scene, though he doesn't want to go. Can you see that in the text? And, and, and. It's possible he's, he's remembering some of the stuff that happened there. The murder of this guy, the rejection of Israelites that mocked him. He's maybe bringing back things he wished he wouldn't have to bring up. And as he's staring at this bush that's on fire that's not burning up, Moses says, well, what name shall I give them who sent me? I, I really don't know who you are and, and what would I say? In the Old Testament, in the ancient world, names are really important. In fact, there still are. Um, in a lot of ways. You chose your children's name. Some of you looked it up and said, oh, it means this. And, you know, that might be true. We just got stuck in the seas and got ourselves into a corner. Um, uh, But some people still pick names because they mean things. Now, certainly the names of God is just not picked. God himself tells what his name means. And so, so, but the idea here is when he's asking this question, he's, he's really saying, what, what sort of God am I going to tell them about? Remember, he's raised in Egypt. Polytheistic, right? Many gods, frogs, Niles, pharaohs, flies. I mean, what, what should I tell them? What sort of God is he? See, a name is a revelation about him. I need to know who you are. I need to be able to explain that. And can he live up? See, the name would say whether he can live up to what he says he's going to do. You know? It's the super great Jake. <laughs> what if I introduced you to everybody like that? You know, Pastor, pretty soon I can't be super great all the time. <laughs> I mean, you know, wouldn't that be hard, meeting girls and stuff? But we can introduce God as super great. Isn't that great? <laughs> you need to know my Savior. He never fails you. He's the unfailing Savior. He's an unfailing God. Isn't that fascinating? Because you don't have to worry about him dropping the ball. You know? Gina, this is my husband, Scott. <laughs> 
He can be really good at times, and he can be really poor at times, right? God, you don't have to introduce God. So he's, he's thinking, so what name should I give him? Because that describes who he is. And, and this might have been, possibly, there's been 400 years since we've heard from this Yahweh. There has been no talk. Everything we've been studying, everything we know comes from all the way back, they wouldn't know this term, but Genesis 12, right? When he revealed himself to Abraham and then on to Isaac and Jacob and what he did with Joseph. But God's message to Moses and the Israelites and the Pharaoh is amazing. Look at verse 14. This is such a key text here that the scriptures highlight this throughout the Bible. And God says to Moses, okay, let me answer this for you in your second objection because I'm going to take this away. And we're going to take this right off the table so you don't ever have to ask me this again. And he makes a statement, I am who I am. And he said, thus you shall say to the sons of Israel, I am has sent you. Now this is, I'm telling you, we could spend the rest of the Wednesdays of our life studying just this, because it's God. And it's really in its simplest terms, mean that God is who he is. And I would ask for just a moment, I just got writing on this and thinking and stuff pouring out of me as I began to think about uh, the theology of God. And let me just share some thoughts that come down. So, you know, take a seat, listen to the loving truth of God's word and all understood in his title and think about some of these statements and, and, and think about God as, as you there. And in fact, in a way, in a spiritual way, remove your shoes as you as you come before him, and maybe we need to cover our faces, we think about this great I am God that he presents himself to Moses as. When you first hear this term, I am who I am, it sounds, this first sounds of the title are eternal. They sound of, they have the sound of eternity. And our God and Savior puts on an eternity like a robe. He knows no past. I mean, think about that. He knows no past. He knows no future. He lives unmoved in, uh, in one unmoving present. He, he doesn't have to go back into the research. He doesn't have to turn back to the annuals of time and kind of work through a memory of what happened there. Everything, past, present, future, all is before him. He sees it as though it's in the exact instance it took place. He is so separate from us in this. Past, present, future, all lay perfectly filleted before him. He stretches out through all the ages which are gone and which are still to come. Did you hear that? He stretches out through all the ages which are gone and which are still to come. He lives in immeasurable boundless. When time was born, he was I am. When time will end, he will be I am. He sits on an unbroken circle of existence. And he who ever was and ever is and ever will be is always the same. From eternity past to eternity future, he is unchanging. This is what this name means. His perfection makes change impossible, yet nothing is impossible with him. You think about that? In his name, in his person, in his character, he never changes. In fact, it's impossible for him to change, yet nothing is impossible for him. He's constantly great. 
As sure as he lives, so surely he lives the same. He is not like the shifting shadows of the gods of the world or the people who live and die daily. He does not change. He does not move like shadows. He is not someone that you're having to try to find him in different areas. We know who he is. He does not need to change. He is one great vastness of never wavering oneness. He sits on a completely calm and controlled throne of eternal peacefulness. His perfection creates tranquility in his immutability. There is no eternal unrest, for he remains always at peace. Wow, is he different than us, isn't he? As you listen to this, just think how different he is than us. This is all what we would say this name describes him in. And and again, I'm just scratching the surface. Listen a little more. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. When we get to his attributes, we begin to think of him this way. I I wrote this in my notes. I said, his attributes are always in full bloom like a midsummer's day because his roots are buried deep within himself. He's always at the peak of bloom. He never fades because he creates that in himself. Oh, you and I, some of us are on the last bloom of our life. He's always on full bloom. The statement teaches us that there is no need of further explanation. The sovereign actions, the sovereign himself will act in his coming. This is God's genuine answer to him. I am who I am. Some of the earlier translations, when they were trying to translate this from Hebrew to Greek, some of them translated this this way. They said, I am the one who is. Meaning the one whose very being is self-existent. In this way, God is separating himself from all the objects of the pagan worship that that are not self-existing, which is everything else. He is the only one that can self-exist. He needs nobody. And yet he he wants a relationship with us. We're we're very needy. John, in his great vision, as he begins to pen Revelations, chapter 1, verse 8, he says, Jesus speaking to him, I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. There's no doubt that God the Father and God the Son share deity, share glory. Now think about that statement, how it connects to verse 12. Think about this great I am God, who we've just described barely. And he says, I will certainly be with you, Moses. He never asked this question again. With all of his doubts and all of his fears, going back, walking into the land that he was a murderer and fled from, he never had to ask this question again. You and I look at that text and and we still have to work with it. But to Moses, standing there in front of his burning bush, he had no doubt that God was something so much greater than him. It is not that the self-existing God is just merely self-existing, but that the self-existing God is with Moses. He's with you. See, that changes everything, doesn't it? See, we don't serve some obscure, self-existing God. That self-existing God has bowed down in a sense. Look down to us. I've come down to see you. And yet, the New Testament says we call him Abba Father. 
And he is not just a self-existing God, but he's personified endlessly by perfect attributes. Think about this as the characteristics of him exist in full equality, each complementing the other. He is not greater in one than others. Today's Christianity, and probably down for the last 2,000 years, Christians love to elevate the God of love. That's his greatest attribute. No, it isn't. All of his attributes are perfectly equal, describing him equally. And they're intertwined. Take his power in his love and study how they coexist and co-endure together. And when you think about us, it is his power and his might that turn the will of the providence of everything that goes on in our life, but yet done in a loving way for his elect. It's amazing. He causes seas to roar and hurricanes to blow, but he makes straight paths of the crooked. That's us. I know I took that interesting, but I thought about that. And we know hurricanes here. We know destruction. And some of our guys just got back from uh, the Bahamas and it's just utter destruction down there. He controls all that and does all that and does it perfectly without sin. And yet he takes us, these crooked people, and draws straight lines about himself. Causes us to walk with him he becomes our rock now think about this he becomes our rock our high tower in the bible says he's a stumbling block put those three together he is our rock he is our high tower and he's a stumbling block to people who reject him and he's perfect in it He splits seas, he shuts the mouth of lions, he slays giants, and he cheers his children on to victory. And these thoughts just barely scratch the surface of who he is, this great I am God. And later on, Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy chapter 33, 27, Moses writes this as he's writing to the nation of Israel. They're prepared to go in and fill this land that God has graciously given them. He says, the eternal God is a dwelling place. Wow. This self-existing God that we just tried our hardest to somewhat put English words to tonight. He's our dwelling place. He's our cleft in the rock where we find peace and forgiveness and eternity in Him alone. And underneath are the everlasting arms. And that means He finds it and He is holding us in it. See, most people look at God as if they believe there's a God, he cannot be knowable, he cannot have a relationship. Several of our founding fathers held that. But as people come to know Jesus Christ, we come to know him. I want you to turn to John chapter 8. I would be remiss if I did not show you this passage. Many of you knew I would probably end up here somehow. John chapter 8 Jesus is in the height of his earthly ministry. He has those who reject him as the Messiah, those who clearly reject him as God. They hate him because he has made himself out to be God because he had the right to do that. Verse 52, he makes this statement, if anyone keeps my word, he will never taste death. That irked them. Because he is saying, I have the right to grant you eternal life. All that the Father gives me, I'll lose none of them. I, I, I and the Father do the same work together. He's been saying this all along. 
I can grant you the ability never to taste death. Now he's talking about second death, right? The death that's the one you really should fear. The one that damns you to hell forever. He says, if anyone keeps my words, and this isn't, this is not a phrase of do this and don't do that. This is the, the desire of the heart of the true follower of the Lord Jesus Christ. And in and, and result of it is we're, we're, we're his children. And what father, think about what father in this room would do anything to save their children from death? And yet you can't, can you? But this one can and so he lays his life down on the cross. And so now he's got him really worked up. And by the time he gets down to verse 56, he says, Your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day, and he saw it and was glad. Galatians 3, 8, Paul preaching this, says that God preached the gospel to him. And he quotes Genesis 12, 3, that he says, In in this seed there will be one who will be a blessing to all the nations. He's talking about the coming of Christ who can forgive sins of Jew, Gentile, pagan, doesn't matter. And the Jews are just up in arms here in 57. They can't get their mind around what he's teaching. They said, you're not 50 years old. You've seen Abraham. And Jesus says to them, truly, truly, I say to you, verse 58, this should be well marked in your Bible. Behold, before Abraham was, (laughs) I am. And look what they do in the next verse. That was it. That was it. You just made yourself out to be the person of Exodus chapter 3, verse 14. We are going to kill you. See, you can't be a believer if you don't believe that Jesus is God. You're something else. You may be religious. But true believers hold the fact that Jesus is God. Because there's no other way we could be saved if he's not. Because then it's going to come down to you and I doing enough to balance the scales, which can never be balanced. And we're all headed for damnation. So think about this a little bit. First um, uh, Timothy chapter 6, towards the end of the book, as he's writing, he's talking about Jesus Christ, but he's connecting him to the God the Father. And he said, who alone possesses immortality, listen to this, and dwells in unapproachable light whom no man has seen or can see to him be honor and eternal dominion amen he just breaks out and prays right and I just want you to think about this text for just a moment Jesus Christ the I am God comes to earth hangs flesh upon him the incarnation so that we can lay eyes on God himself one of my favorite verses is John 1.18. No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten God who is of the bosom of the Father, he has explained him. He said, Jesus, you've seen me. You've seen the Father. So when you're thinking about Exodus chapter 3, you've got to preach this. You've got to think about this. And man... I'm sure God brought Moses to the understanding of the coming Messiah and knew that this was his job, that his man-given, his God-given man job that he was to do to bring this nation out. Within it was the seed that was going to come who would be the explanation of God. He would 
be the perfect sacrifice for us and all those sacrificial system that Moses himself would write down, he knew there was a greater sacrifice to come, a greater covenant. And he looked forward to that. And so when we preach and talk about Jesus Christ, we reveal the God, glory of God. And so I didn't want to miss that part of it. I could preach to, you know, for hours on that as you look at that scene. But for some time's sake, I want to finish this chapter. Let's move on. Now, God said to Moses uh, to give this message to the Israelites and to the elders and Pharaoh. Look at verse, back to our text. I'm still over here. Back in text, uh, Exodus 3, verse 15. So he's gotten through this monumental verse in verse 14. Of course, he's just speaking to them. Moses records this later by the inspiration of the Spirit of God. But verse 13, 15 begins to record what happens next. God furthermore says to Moses, Thus you shall say to the sons of Israel, The Lord, the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and this is my memorial name to all generations. We'll come back to that in a minute. Go and gather the elders of Israel together and say to them, The Lord, the God of your father, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, has appeared to me, saying, I am indeed concerned about you and what has been done to you in Egypt. So I said, I will bring you out of the affliction of Egypt to the land of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Prezerites, the Hivites, the Jebusites, to a land flowing with milk and honey. And they will pay heed to you what you say, and you with the elders of Israel will come to the king of Egypt, and you will say to him, The Lord God, the God of the Hebrews, has met with me. So now, please, let us go three days' journey into the wilderness, that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God. But I know, God speaking still here, that the king of Egypt will not permit you to go except under compulsion. Now, here we begin to see this instruction from God. I love this instruction because it doesn't have any doubt that it's going to happen. All the doubt is laying on Moses' side. There's no doubt on God's side, right? He knows how it's all going to turn out. That's why we got to trust him and not man. And so he begins to tell him this is what's going to unfold. But in verse 15, I think it's such a fascinating. He says, this is my name. After 14, he says, this is my name forever. Well, why would it be Forever. Because he's unchanging. <laughs> he's already described that. This is my memorial name to all generations. So this is the name we should talk about him as well. His name forever marks his immutability, his eternality. It's to be memorialized means to remember. We are to remember this God. One of the reasons we study the Bible is to remember how great our God is. Because as soon as we get done with here, we got a million things going on. Josh and Sierra got a ton of things to get done for, what, for next Monday, don't you? I mean, our minds fill with all kinds of things. So we have to take time and we got to go, whoa, God, I need to spend some time with you to remind myself who you are. Because the things of the world pull me. So this is, he says, this is a memorial name to all generations. The Israelites were, were not to forget this name. Don't forget this name. This is the first time they're going to hear this name, Right? I mean, they're going to understand it's the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They're going to say, oh, that's the same one that talked to them. But now he has this I am statute to him, right? This is who he is. And it was meant to help them move forward in faith and obedience and simple trust in this I am God. Notice in verse 16. 
Here, the Meshets carries a repeated deep concern. 16 is great because a lot of people just think that God isn't concerned when things go through. And remember, he already said it in verses 7 through 9, but he repeats it again. He goes, this is what I want you to tell them. You go tell them this, the God of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, appear to me. I am indeed concerned about you. When you counsel people, you've got to tell them God's concerned about you. Because <laughs> people going through hardship forget it. Because you know where you are. We're like, woe is me. We have an Eeyore theology. It's dark in the hundred acre woods. We're never going to get out. And, the, and what's the guys they were always scared about? Yeah, somebody's saying it over here. They're going to get us. You know, he says, look, I'm indeed concerned with you. I have a deep concern for you. And this is the first time the nation of Israel as a whole is being addressed by God and his concerns. They were never really a nation before this. They were Jacob and 70 people coming into Egypt at best. This is the first time they are a nation. There are millions of people now we know because record shows them coming out. So the first time as a nation, as, as a multitude of people, God's saying, here's who I am, here's my name, I'm deeply concerned about you. That must have been an amazing day. Verse 17 reminds them, look, um, I see the affliction and I'm taking you somewhere. This message recalls really the dying words of Joseph, right? Look at chapter 50, just over a page or two, chapter 50, verse 24. Moses is dying. Joseph says to his brothers, I'm about to die, but God will surely take care of you. Now notice this, and bring you up from this land to a land which, is, which he promised to an oath to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So now they're hearing it. They had heard this story. This was in their history. This was probably in print that they had taught their young ones. The God of Abraham, our forefather, promised to bring us into a nation. And he not only promised Abraham, but he also promised Isaac and Jacob. And our dear forefather, Joseph, when he died here in Egypt, he believed it so much that in verse 25, back in Genesis 50, made them swear not to leave his bones there. And when God comes out, comes to bring you out, take my bones with you. And when you turn back and you look at verse 17, that's what this is about. I will bring you out of the affliction of Egypt to the land of these enemies, flowing with milk and honey. It's a great statement. Deep concern with suffering. He's bringing aid to the needy. But he also, uh, also that he sees and he deals with godless nations. He'll lead them to battle. He'll oversee their battle plans, right? I'm going to bring you, you just go, well, I'm going to bring you to this land. Well, what are you going to do with the Canaanites and Hittites? Just move over, we're moving in. No, he's actually going to remove them because they're anti-God. <laughs> they have rejected the living God. So he's even said, not only am I going to give you this land, I'm just going to move your enemies out as well. I'm going to take care of them, and he certainly does that. Verse 18, he said, they will pay heed to you. Boy, Moses needed to hear this, right? Last time I tried to talk to them, they mocked me. He says, they will pay heed to you, to what you say. And you with the elders of Israel will come to the king of Egypt and you will say to him, the Lord God, the God of the Hebrews has met with us. So now please let us go three days journey into wilderness that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God. Notice the wills. And there's two wills in there in verse 18. 
Uh, they will pay heed, and Israel will, and the elders will come. I, I like that. That's a promise of success. God doesn't say, God never does, well, you know, why don't you try this and see how it works out. If it doesn't work out, I'll come up with something different. And that's how we address things, right? You know, let's see if the IRS will, you know, give us a break. <laughs> uh, no, they don't. Uh, anyway, um, Jesus says, look, I'm coming again. So let's connect this. So, so our, our God does not change his mind, right? So Jesus told us he's coming again. You go, man, Scott, maybe we should change our eschatology because, you know, it's been 10,000 years and a lot of this hasn't been happening. And so man will change their views of God and what he says because of time. Everything is right before him. Time is not an issue with him. He knows it is with us. And so I love these verses because, look, I will do this. There's no plan B because I'm God. Notice in verse at the end of verse 18, um, this request for this three-day uh, jaunt, religious jaunt, it was very proper. It was, it was very etiquette in this area. It was to be asked firmly but politely. And I want you to understand this. Three days would have taken them outside of the parameter of Egypt, the control of it. Egypt, Egyptians were only allowed to go so far away from the land under the sovereign authority of Pharaoh. And then think about this. And this is very important when you try to figure out why they're doing this. If they worship God the way he instructs them to worship in the land of Egypt, they'll have to kill them all. Because that would be a completely threat against Pharaoh, God, Pharaoh. So here God is saying, look, I know your situation. And you need to let Pharaoh know that we're not worshiping like you. We need to get out from underneath you because you will not put up with us who we're worshiping. And we know that Pharaoh would reject that. Verse 19 tells us, but I know God speaking, not Moses. Moses didn't know what was going to happen. He could surmise, but God says, I know the king of Egypt will not let this happen. See, God knew Pharaoh's heart and God knew he would. Now, we're going to talk about this in coming weeks that his heart hardens, that he hardens the Pharaoh's heart. He would let Pharaoh's heart just go into his depravity. And we'll talk about what that means. It's going to tie us to Romans 1. It's going to tie us to a lot of passages, what it means when God hardens the heart. We'll look at the words. We'll look at the understanding of that. And he's just going to let him go. But then he says, under, except under compulsion. And here he begins to talk about really what he is going to do. This is, this is the course refers to the action of God. Because Moses is probably thinking, now what, I mean, okay, I got, I got your name down. I got to talk about going out and having this worship service for three days. How am I going to get this king to let him go? Uh, that's where I come in. <laughs> My mighty hand will bring him out, verse 20. So I will stretch out my hand. I will stretch out my hand. This is what we call an anthropomorphic teaching of God. He, I think this is a very kind of God when he does this in the scriptures because it's very hard. John chapter 4 verse 24 says he is spirit, right? So it's very hard for us to see him, but he gives us terms like father. He gives us the arm or the outstretched hand of God to help us mere humans in our fallen conditions to try to get our mind around him. But he says in verse 20, I will stretch out my hand and I will strike Egypt. So God is ready to put on a display of his power in verse 20. And his might, thus proving that he's the I am God and there's none like him. 
I'll stretch it out. The superior power of just the hand of God, just a flick of the hand of God will break the will of Pharaoh. That's what he's saying. That's how powerful he is. Finally, just real quick, this last set of verses here. Number four, God's favor and blessing for his worship. Verse 21 and 22 say this, I will grant this people favor in the sight of the Egyptians, and it shall be that when you go, remember he's still talking to Moses here, they're out in the middle of nowhere, there's a bush being burned but not consumed, Yahweh speaking from it, the great I am God. He says, you will not go empty-handed, in verse 21. But every woman shall ask of her neighbor, and every woman who lives in her house, articles of silver and articles of gold and clothing, and you will put them on your sons and daughters. Thus you will plunder the Egyptians. See, this, this is a prediction by God of his victory before it ever even begins. <laughs> well, you know, we don't, maybe some people do. You know, after the big game, we're going to go out and celebrate. Well, coach is going to come in. Whoa, whoa, we haven't even started yet. You guys are way out and you're going to lose the game. You know, we try to stay focused in the moment. God's saying, look, I already know how that comes out. And so think about this. The Lord, Yahweh, the God of the slaves, will triumph over the gods of Egypt. The God of the Israelites will triumph over the gods of the Egyptians. And that's what he's saying here. And again, this great struggle and deliverance becomes a type, becomes a model. There's all kinds of things, slavery that holds us, our sin holds us and, and damns us. God is greater. So the Israelites were not to leave Egypt alone, right? They, they were to, uh, or empty-handed, they, they were to come out. And God, God's rightly prophesying that the Israelites would plunder the Egyptians. And this was, some people say, well, they were borrowing goods, or there's, there's some talk today in some of the stuff that's going on around the church that, well, this was the wages for slavery. I don't think that was that at all. I think God's humiliating the Egyptians and their dead gods. Your fly god can't stop us from wearing your jewelry on the way out of town. Your Pharaoh's son is dead. Your right to the throne has been removed. What are you going to do about it? And by the way, give me your stuff. See, he's showing his power and authority. And the Israelite children were, were wearing, and notice he says, your children will wear these things, these precious jewels and clothing, showing the reversal of roles. And I, and I think, just, man, I have so much application, right? You think, we, we look at the world and we go, wow, they just seem to, you know, they got everything, right? They got the cars, the money, the wealth, the women, the sex, all that stuff, and they're just running in it. Ooh, there's a day coming. Nobody gets away with Nothing. And the richest people in the world are people who believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Our inheritance is unbelievable that comes as we sit with the King of Kings for all of glory and marvel at him and there is no need for sun, there is no tear, all sins are wiped away and thought of it and a righteous understanding of God is complete in our minds and our hearts and we live forever with him with unending worship. There's a reversal of roles coming, friends. And I think we see that so often in here. It was also God's means of providing for his children. They don't have anything when you're a slave. <laughs> and so they go out with all these precious metals. 
and, and, and it gives them wealth as they move through the lands and buy and purchase things. And, and, and then eventually they build a tabernacle. And you remember how much gold goes in? Remember reading about when they build these tabernacles and build these altars and stuff? And well, where's it all coming from? Egypt. And, and not only that, think about just, and I gotta end, but think about when, when, when baby Jesus and, and Joseph and Mary leave because wicked Herod is doing exactly what his other forefathers did. They tried to kill babies, right? And were killing male children again at the time of the birth of, just shortly after the time of the birth of Christ. God sends wise men to them and gives them what? Gold and gifts. And here's a family that doesn't have anything because their family probably rejected them because she was pregnant out of wedlock. They did not understand that God himself had placed the, the, the child in the womb of her. And so they don't have anything. And so God, what does he do? He provides for them. And they spend several years in Egypt. The same nation that God judged. He sends them down there to protect them. And they take a route down through there and come back two or three late years later. Isn't this fascinating? Let's pray. Father, we could talk about you all night, but we got to go home. I pray we would think about you. And you would um, be on our minds and our hearts. Lord, we're so easily consumed with, with fear and the unknown, uh, our health, our finances. Lord, we're so easily consumed with those things, Lord. We're, we're, we're fearful people. But you are the I am God. All things are right in front of you. Everything is before you. You know our beginning, our end. You know everything about us and how it's all going to transpire. And yet, we do not talk to you. We just worry and fret. So Lord, help us remember this great passage, Exodus 3.14, this I am God, this self-existing one who knows all things and who has presented himself perfectly through the Lord Jesus Christ so we can have a relationship with you. And you even give us the faith to believe that he died for us and forgave us our sins. You've done it all, Lord. And you've also written the end. You told us what the kingdom will look like. You told us what heaven will be like. And there is no doubt in your mind or in your words that you write in the scriptures, Lord. May you strengthen us to believe you. Thank you for this evening, Lord. May you bless our study. May it penetrate our hearts and minds, Lord, and cause us to worship. In Jesus' name, amen.